you know, there's a wonderful place. We're, we're doing studies in the New Testament uh, this spring, and we'll do that again today in the book of Nehemiah. But there's this wonderful place in the New Testament. I'd I, I love to take the time to, to go there, but I dare not for now. Uh, it's the story of the Ethiopian eunuch. Perhaps if you've been in the church sometime, you've, you've heard of that, at least, the Ethiopian eunuch. It's Acts chapter 8, and I, I'd love to read verses 26 through 36. You might jot that down, go home, homework, read about the Ethiopian eunuch, Acts 8, 26 through 36. But it's a marvelous exchange. If you remember, um, Philip is led by the Spirit, and he goes down this road, and there's this chariot where this well-to-do, established man from Africa who has risen to a position of some prominence in the queen's court. He has journeyed to Jerusalem because he is a God-fearer, and he wanted to worship God. God is stirring in his heart and leading him to follow uh, the, the law and the prophets and Jehovah God. And in his procession, in his chariot, he's reading, and not only is he reading from the scroll of an Old Testament prophet, but he's doing so aloud. And Philip overhears this because he's being led by the Spirit, and he hears this, and he asks the man a very poignant question. Do you understand what you are reading? And I love the freshness, the candor of the response. Well, how could I unless someone guides me? How could I unless someone guides me? He invites him up into the chariot, and it turns out that what he was reading from was the scroll of the prophet Isaiah in chapter 53, what we call the suffering servant about like a sheep uh, silent before its shearer. So is a, a lamb uh, led to the slaughter. And of course, you and I know that that's prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And in verse 35 in Acts 8, it describes Philip as beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. He preached Jesus to him from the Old Testament and declared the word of the Lord. There's a doctrine in the church, you don't have to remember this word, but it's called the perspicuity of Scripture. And it basically teaches this, that some passages of Scripture are easier to understand than others. And most of us would agree with that. We would find that true in our own reading, in our own experience. Some passages are, are rather straightforward, and others, it takes some work and some, some study. We believe in the priesthood of all believers that all of God's people can read enough from God's word for faith and for practice. For faith, that means to believe in Jesus, to know the way of salvation. You can read the Bible for yourself and understand enough to know about Jesus and to live it out. Faith and practice. Practice means putting it into practice, living it out in your life. We can read the Bible and understand that much on our own. And yet it is helpful to have those who are trained in the scriptures to preach Jesus to us. And that's why you're here today. I recognize that. So let's see how the Lord preaches Jesus to us today from Nehemiah chapter 8. And in doing so, if they are willing, I meant to give you guys a heads up and I did not. If you're willing, I would invite... Um, our three elders who are here today to come up on the platform. 
Um, if you're willing, Charlie, you might come over here and Kurt and Ben stand over there if you're willing and comfortable to do that. And we're going to hear God's word, Nehemiah chapter 8. And I'm going to invite the rest of you all to participate in two ways. One by hearing with faith, and the other way is by standing. I would invite you to stand to rise to hear God's word. It's not too long. It's 18 verses. I'm a fairly quick reader, so we should be able to do this. This is in Nehemiah, but now we see again this character, Ezra, who we met last year at this time. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Masaiah, uh, Masaiah on his right hand, and Padiah, Mishael, Malkijah, Hashum, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Maseah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Paliah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and all the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the, the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way. Eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our God. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. Verse 13, On the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. 
So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof, and in their courts, and in the courts of the house of God, and in the square at the water gate, and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths for from the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. This is the word of God. Praise be to God. You may be seated. What we have seen in previous weeks from Nehemiah, chapters 1 through 7, rebuilding the wall. Uh, in, in the end of chapter 7, they start repopulating the city. Chapters 1 through 6, in particular, rebuilding the wall. And then chapter 7, where there's this, we saw last time, we saw this roster of the people, and they begin to talk about repopulating the city, which they do progressively. So chapters 7 through 13 is kind of part two of the book. And uh, it's reforming the covenant community. So chapter 1, we read a lot about a physical task that had spiritual consequences, spiritual implications. It was rebuilding the wall, mile and a half, two miles around the perimeter of the city. And now, chapter 7 through 13, it's reforming the covenant community. And today, what I want you to think about is the fact that every great revival and spiritual awakening that has happened down through history, and if you've read it all, church history Different ones, even in our nation, have been identified. Great awakenings, spiritual awakenings. Every great revival and spiritual awakening down through history has occurred when the Lord causes people to return to his word. It's always happened when there's been a return to the word of God. And so today we're going to look at uh, teaching methods, letter A in your outline. We're going to look at, at the leaders and how they approached God's word. And then letter B, we're going to look at the response of the people. So teaching methods and then responding to the word. And that will be our approach today. So under teaching methods, and if you're taking notes, your sermon outline full sheet is available to you today. I'll go ahead and give you all four points as I tend to do. First, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to say, then I'm going to say it, then I'm going to tell you what I said. So uh, that's kind of how I teach. What we see reflected in this passage, at least I do, by observations, we see team teaching, public reading, clear explaining, and group studying. We'll walk back through that. Team teaching, public reading, clear explaining, and group studying. This is all under Ezra Described. He's described in chapter, um, well, in, in this chapter as both scribe and priest, and actually in the previous book, which bears his name. Now remember, Ezra and Nehemiah were originally one book of the Bible. And a year ago, we walked through Ezra together. And in Ezra chapter 7, it says this. 
about this man, Ezra. This Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given, and the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him, too, just like Nehemiah, in fact, 13 years earlier. And then verse 10, for Ezra had set his heart to study the law of God and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. A threefold focus for Ezra, this priest scribe, this godly man who was devoted to the word, what? He studied it, he, he lived it, and he taught it. That was his life. That was his ministry. And they've gathered at the water gate, the east side of the city on a platform. They had built a wooden platform. We have a platform. By the way, I don't know, just a thing in my mind, but when I talk with pastors and stuff, this is not a stage. I never refer to this as a stage because I'm not an actor and I am not a performer. There may be some dramatic elements of my preaching, but this is a platform. And the platform that they had shows that they had prepared, that they had thought about it and invested time and labor because they valued the word of God as we do in this church. Team teaching. Ezra is in, in, involved. The priests are involved. It says specifically in verse 13. There's a list of Levites in here. What were Levites? They were assistants to the priests. They were worship leaders. They helped in the ongoing ministry, their temple ministry. And there's 13 of them, I believe it is, named here. Uh, we see this list of them, um, verse, uh, I can't remember, verse 9, I have jotted down here. And historians estimate that this was a crowd of 30,000 people gathered together. And so the 13 Levites were involved in explaining the word of God. Uh, they may have done that from the platform. At least one uh, commentary suggests that they went out into the people. 30,000 people gathered there en masse. No PA system, no amplification. And they spend all day. Now, I don't know what it was like for you all to stand in the sanctuary today. I wonder if some of you chose to stand with us at home. Uh, for you gentlemen that I didn't tip you off, as I perhaps should have, to stand on the platform. Maybe it seemed like a really, really long time. And not to heap burning coals on your head, but they did so from the crack of dawn until midday. Hours the people stood to hear God's word because they prized it, because they valued it so. There was team teaching. There was public reading. Four hours, as I've said, as much as six hours. And also a prayer of praise, in verse 6, to our great God. A prayer of praise. Not only that, but there was clear explaining. Verse 8. Uh, explaining, verse 7, they, they made it clear. Verse 8, they gave the sense, making it distinct. Now, what was going on here? It's possible that part of their work 
was translating the Hebrew to the Aramaic. Okay, some of these people were, had returned to the land like Nehemiah, who grew up his whole life in Persia. And their language very likely was Aramaic. And so this is taking the book of the law, which is either a reference to the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, five books of Moses, or at least Deuteronomy, whichever. All five books, they had six hours, right? Did, did they spend in five books or, or just one, Deuteronomy? Regardless, they're in the law of God. They're in the word of God. It's being translated. I wonder if you've ever participated or at least seen. I've had a few such opportunities to, to proclaim the word of God in my heart language, in my mother tongue, English, and have someone translate it then into another language. It's a beautiful thing. But not only that, the language, but they were reading and interpreting paragraph by paragraph the word of God. They're giving insight. The note from the Reformation Study Bible says, the law was not only read but explained to ensure that the people grasped the meaning. The things necessary for salvation can be understood from the Bible without special techniques or higher education. This truth, that you can understand the Bible enough on your own for faith and practice, right? Priesthood of all believers. This truth does not eliminate the need for faithful exposition of the scriptures by persons trained for this. That was true at this time, in the 5th century BC. It continues to be true today. The doctrine of the perspicuity of scripture, some parts are easier to understand than others. Anyone should be able to read the Bible and to believe in Jesus and walk with Jesus. Right? And that's the bottom line. But why do we gather together and give over a great portion of this one hour a week? One. 176 hours we gather for one and we give half that time or more to the preaching of the word of God. We believe in the centrality of the word of God in our worship. Particularly by those who have been licensed and ordained, studied to show themselves approved, and they've been ordained to such a ministry. Team teaching, public reading, clear explaining, right? Remember our friend, the Ethiopian eunuch? Well, how can I unless someone guides me? And then group studying. Group studying in verse 13, there, there's day two. Turns out being day two through eight, actually. The heads of the household. So the first day, a great crowd, thousands of them, maybe 30,000. Man, woman, it says explicitly women were there. Uh, and those old enough to understand, those of, of age. That was day one. For half the day, and then they get sent home. Go eat lunch. Sounds good, right? But day two, we've got the heads of the household. James Boyce said the heads of families determined to engage in regular and systematic Bible study. They ask for it. They say, we need to hear more of this. We need to know more. We need to understand more. And they go back for more under the tutelage of Ezra 
and of the Levites. So that's from a teaching perspective, team teaching, public reading, clear explaining, and group studying. Now let's go to the people's perspective, responding to the word, letter B in your outline. Responding to the word, and as I said, they're in the book of the law, probably the book of Deut Deuteronomy, maybe the, the whole Torah, the, the first five. Regardless, the Lord had commanded this word. This is the word of the Lord. The Lord had given this word. And so under responding to the word, I've listed for you seven ways that the people responded, but I came up with an eighth in my preparation. At the top of the list, ahead of number one should be they gathered. They gathered as one man. It says it in verse one. It says it in verse 13. As a body, they were together as we have done today, as myriads of other gatherings are doing around the globe on this, the Lord's Day, the first day of the week. We have others who are gathering with us as best they can for a time from home. And I will just say, I hope it is for a time. I hope that when you are friends watching from home, I hope that when you are well, or I hope that when you believe that it is safe to return, and I, I, I gather we're all, you know, people are all, all, all over the map on that. But it's important to gather. It's important to be together. It's so important, in fact, that some people in some parts of the world, like in China, risk their lives to do so. It's so important to gather, to be together, that when we partake of the Lord's Supper next week, as we wait on the Lord together, we'll do so in gladness and anticipation. We'll also do so with a bit of sadness because some members of our body won't be gathered with us. And they won't be able to partake with us. So gathering is an important thing. Men and women, women mentioned in verse 3. The New Testament classic passage, we looked at it in Sunday school hour this morning, Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. If you're a Christian, you've been around the church, you've heard that one. Refresh on that one. Look it up. Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. All right, so now let's enumerate the seven ways for responding to the word and talk about them each briefly again. Understanding. Attentiveness. Number two. Reverence, solemnity, and worship. Number three. Different postures. Number four. Did you note that during the reading? Different postures. Number five. Weeping. Number six. The opposite. Rejoicing. And number seven, proclamation and application. Understanding. If you flip over your sermon outline on the back, I, I don't even have mine near me. I, I, I'm using my pew Bible. Flip it over on the back, and I've underlined for you, I've highlighted for you five times in this short chapter, it talks about understanding. Five times in the first 12 verses. I've done that for you on the back. It's important to understand the Word of God. The Word of, the word of God is neglected today. It's neglected in the world. It's neglected in American society. It's neglected in the church. There is biblical illiteracy. There is a famine for the Word of the Lord, clearly taught and explained systematically expositionally, exegetically going through books of the Bible so you 
apprehend the mind of God, God breathing through his word to you. I remember my mother, um, when I came to Christ, I had the privilege of introducing three of my family members to Christ as a new Christian, and one of them was my mother. And I'd love to tell you a lot about the story. There's simply not time to do that. But I will say this. Either, either I led her to Christ or she returned to her childhood faith. Doesn't matter. One or the other. You know what really changed her? I mean, seeing my changed life had an impact on her. Seeing my sister Cindy's life had an impact on her. She returned to the Lord. She got back in church. It's first just dipping a toe and then church shopping and hopping before settling in. You know what really changed my mother's life? Bible study. She got involved in a, a precept upon precept Bible study, specifically the one on the covenant, and it changed her life. As she no longer was convinced about Jesus and the word of God from my zeal and my testimony, but by being in the word herself. And it convinced her. And her life, man, her, she grew then as a Christian. Understand the word of God. Attentiveness. Is it in 2 Timothy? Paul says, until I come, give attention to what we've already done this morning. To what? The public reading of scripture. I often cite that from the pulpit or in my prayers when gathered with you all in this way. Give attention to the public reading of Scripture. Uh, in Hebrew here, it literally means give your ear. Incline your ear. Listen, right? It's not just about the ear, but listen. Hear and consider. Give a keen hearing. Gain insight. Verse 13. They were attentive. In fact, they seemed to be calling for the word. They, they asked, in verse 1, they asked, depending on what translation you're reading, they asked Ezra to bring the book. It may have been that they commanded him, bring the book, because they wanted to hear the word of God. Somehow they, they understood that as a people they'd been neglecting the word of God. They said, bring us the word. J.I. Packer says, imagine an impatient audience at a rock concert picking up the chant, we want Ezra, we want Ezra. I would, I would tweak what Packer said just a little bit. We want the word, we want the word. That's what was going on. They were eager, they were attentive. Proverbs chapter 22 Starting at verse 17, it says this about your ear. How is your ear this morning? Incline your ear and hear the words of the wise and apply your heart to my knowledge. For it will be pleasant for you if you keep them within you, if all of them are ready on your lips, that your trust may be in the Lord. It's not just Bible study because, you know, it's a magic charm, lucky charm, or a vitamin pill. 
read my Bible, it's a good day, didn't read my Bible, uh-oh, I guess God can't use me. No, that your trust may be in the Lord. I have made them known to you today, even to you. The purpose of being in the Word, we don't worship the Bible. We're not Biblians, we're Christians. We do not worship the Bible, we do not venerate the Bible. When, when Ezra in Nehemiah chapter 8 holds the book aloft, he's not asking them to worship the, the, the scroll of Deuteronomy or the law. He's asking them to worship Jehovah God. But they are reverencing that the word of God is being read in their presence. The purpose of the word is that your trust may be in the Lord. Rico Tice says, you make time for what is important to you. He talked about preparing for a series of messages in which he was speaking, I think, five times in, I don't know, 36 hours or, or so. And he talked about the demand on him, the pressure, and how he was eager and excited, and how the night before, I think maybe his fourth talk, or wh whichever one, third, fourth talk, that he went and he found a pub where he could find the soccer highlights. He said, I had no business really doing that, but you make time for what is important to you. And that was important to him. I had the same battle myself this morning. How about you? Tice goes on to say, if you're not reading the Bible, if you're not making time Forgive me. If you're not making time to read the Bible, it is because it is not important to you. Ty cites a, a busy mother of three children under age five, and he, he lamented with her the likelihood of, oh, wow, your life is so crazy for this seasonal life. You probably can't read the Bible. And she brought him up short. She said, no, I make time every day. Don't tell me I don't have time for the word of God. Because, friend, you make time for what's important to you. And I know to some degree I'm preaching in the choir today, demonstrated by your presence. Revenant, reverence, number three, reverence, solemnity, verse 18, and worship. Reverence, solemnity, and worship. Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. Verse six. And the people said, Amen, Amen. What does amen mean? It doesn't just mean, oh, I'm done talking now, or I'm done praying now. Amen means, you, you know this, even so, or, or so let it be. It involves assent and approval on the part of the people. This is their heart response to the word of God. Number four, we see different postures. There's standing. Verse five is, I had y'all do. There's lifting hands. All right, let's be honest for a moment. How many of you were slightly uncomfortable with standing for that length of time as I read all of the chapter? Anybody bold enough to raise their hand? It's probably because Presbyterians don't raise their hand in church. I, I, I don't know. But they're standing in verse 5. There's lifting of hands in verse 6. Guess what? That's in the New Testament too. Here's your reference. Jotters, 1 Timothy 2.8. Look at that one about lifting hands, 1 Timothy 2.8. And then they're bowing low. They're bowing so low, they're bowed down, they're prostrating themselves in humility and adoration. Sometime maybe I will do a study from the whole Bible, just for myself, I'm telling myself this, 
making a mental note. I misplaced too many of my mental notes. Do, Tom, do a study on postures throughout the scripture because we see different postures. Their bodies were involved. Romans 12, present your bodies as living sacrifices. Worship him with all that you are. Don't get caught up in body-soul dualism. Don't think your body has nothing to do with it. The physical may profiteth, but for a little while, but the physical profiteth. And God cares about your body, too. Well, that's a side issue. All right, weeping and rejoicing, numbers 5 and 6. Weeping, verse 9, two times. It talks about them weeping with grief, verse 10. Humiliation, conviction of sin, guilt and remorse. According to godly sorrow, here's your New Testament references and you're going to need to jot again. Some of you all do jot and you do look them up on rare occasion. You even tell me so. And I hope it's encouraging and useful to you. It is to me. 2 Corinthians 7.10, Romans 2.4. Godly sorrow, New Testament, 2 Corinthians 7.10. Also, Romans 2.4. See, this group of people, they're hurting over the fact that they've not kept covenant with God. They're not promise keepers. They're promise breakers, as we all are. And the Levites had to calm the people. They had to, had to hush them and had to shush them and comfort them. Comfort, 2 Corinthians 1. God of all comfort, Father of mercies. Read about comfort, 2 Corinthians 1. 1 Thessalonians 4.18 Comfort one another with these words. What words? The words about the return of Christ. The epilogue to the story. Someone's coming back for you. You've not been abandoned. You've not been left alone. Draw hope from that. Draw comfort from that. They had to calm the people because they were grieving over their sin. But they told them to rejoice. Instead, and there was very Great rejoicing, verses 10, 12, 17. Eat fat. That doesn't sound good. The drippings, we have drippings at home in a little bowl on the stove. I don't want to eat that fat. I mean, it means eat the richest of food from Isaiah 25 this morning in Sunday school. The, the, the richest, the fine meats and uh, aged wines. They sent them home. The people were lamenting and grieving over their sin, and they had to encourage them and say, no, go home. Go home and rejoice and enjoy being with one another and rejoice with food and, and share to him, with him who has none prepared. Send portions. Send portions is seen in the book of Esther, the Feast of Purim. Uh, it's also in the New Testament in the rebuke to the church at Corinth in the love feast where some people were just hogs and couldn't wait on the others. And they're rebuked for that. Share. The, the, the feast of, of, of the, by the way, this was during the seventh month, the feast of trumpets, Rosh Hashanah. And they're reminded, the people are reminded from the word, remember they go back for Bible study day two, and uh, they're reminded from the word about the Feast of Booths, another feast. This is at the time of the Feast of Trumpets, but they're reminded about the Feast of Booths. Um, and they go out and they do it. 
That's the last point. The joy of the Lord is your strength. There should be gladness, even mirth over God's word, or what Packer calls the sheer joy of knowing God. You want to read about some joy in the Bible? First Chronicles 16, verse 27, actually verses 23 through 34. King David in the ark. Do you have joy in the, in the Lord? When's the last time you wept over your sins? When's the last time you rejoiced in the Lord? And then proclamation and application. Proclamation. Um, in Act 17, it talks about a group of people who spent their days in doing nothing more than uh, hearing what's new, hearing the new, newest, latest thing, you know? 15 minutes of fame, what's, what's trending on Twitter right now? That's what they were about. Well, from our pulpits of our churches, we don't need the newest, latest stuff. We need the Word of God. We need the gospel of Christ. We need to return to the Word of God. And these people applied it. They rejoiced. They kept the Feast of Booths, which is talked about more than just Deuteronomy 16 and 31. It's talked about in Leviticus 23 and Numbers 29. They went and they did it right away. Semper reformanda. A Latin expression. Should have been do it, not me. Semper reformanda. The reformed church is always reforming. Keep reforming. Keep bringing your own life Keep bringing your local church into conformity with what you see in the Word of God. Because repentance is followed by new obedience, putting into practice what you see in the Word of God. Works are the evidence of your faith. Works, good works, are the fruit of your faith. God is to be worshipped. God's word is to be obeyed. It's to be implemented. It's to be put into practice. Tice says there is always joy in obedience, even if it's very hard. One of the first verses I memorized as a brand new Christian was John 14, 21. And, it, and part of what Jesus says there is, he who has my commandments and keeps them. Now, you may have a Bible. You may have a Reformation study Bible. But are you reading it? And not only are you reading it, are you implementing it into your life? He who has my commandments and keeps them, says Jesus, is the one who loves me. And he goes on to talk about how the Father will love that person and he will love that person. You want to know Jesus' love? Obey his word. John 14, 21. You can look it up. Time for us to uh, close and make a few applications of our own. Um, just three thoughts that occurred to me on this. First of all, team teaching. We see that in this passage. Well, at Grace Presbyterian Church, we have elders teaching the Word of God. I teach. Ben teaches. Jonathan teaches. Charlie teaches. Kurt, we need to get you teaching some more. He led some prayer meetings last summer. The elders teach the Word of the Lord. In the Old Testament, you have Ezra, the priest scribe, uh, or prophet and priest, if you will, 
along with Nehemiah, the governor, king. So there between the two of them, they've got the threefold office, prophet, priest, and king covered. Prophet and priest by Ezra, king covered by Nehemiah. Well, in the New Testament, the gospel is that there is one perfect prophet, priest, and king. Christ declares the word of God to us. He explains God to us. And his priestly sacrifice, his one offering of him, himself for all time. And now in his session, in his ruling and reign, he prays and makes intercession for us as our high priest still living today and interceding for us. And as king, he subdues us to himself and all of his and our enemies. The perfect prophet, priest, and king. And he will return. Not as a swaddled babe in a manger, not as a foot-washing servant, not meek and lowly on a donkey, not even to suffer and die, for it is finished. He's already done that. When he comes and returns, it will be as a victorious Redeemer King. And the joy of the Lord is our strength. First application, elders, team teaching, the Word of God in the local church. Second Grace Presbyterian Church, GPC, we are to be wordocentric. Let's not contribute to the biblical illiteracy in our culture and in the church at large. Let's not be a part of that. Let's get in the word and be people of the book. Now, we don't worship the Bible. We worship the God of the Bible. But number uh, third, my last application, what about a place for festivity? Is there a place for festivity in your life, in your heart, in the church, together? Send portions. To, to, to whom? To the poor, the widows, the shut-ins, the people we prayed for earlier, the elderly. What, what about singles? Including them in your family celebrations and such. I thought, you know, do we do festivity as a church? We're, we're in shutdown. We are trying to do, we are studying, we are talking about hospitality. We are trying to figure out some things to do to express hospitality in our local church. We had a great time together January 25th, a year ago, and then boom, the lockdown and all that stopped. And we gathered uh, at the park here under, uh, what do you call those things? The Tom Pavilion at the pavilion for a send-off for Greg. And I think that was good, not only for Greg, it was good for the church. A bunch of us were there, and we ate food and told Greg we appreciated him. James Boy says, If we do not rejoice, it is because we do not love the word of God as these people did, and because we do not obey it. Last thing, Rico Tice says, Christian joy comes from hearing, revering, understanding, receiving, and obeying the Word of God. Let's pray. Thy words were found by me, and I ate them, and they became to me a delight and the joy of my soul. Let that be true for our people. We thank you, Jesus, for being our perfect prophet, priest, and king, for declaring the word and giving yourself for us and rising from the dead and being the risen Lord of glory. We pray in your name.